This is the Block Hash Podcast. Well, it's nice to have you on, Chi. How you doing? I'm good. It's sunny here in Southern California. Nice. The sun finally broke out in Central Oregon, so I'm very happy about that. So tell me a little bit about um, your backgrounds. Give like a short intro or bio so for the people that are listening, know who you are just a little bit and kind of what you do. Yeah. My name is Chi Feng. I come from China, Guangzhou, which is close to Hong Kong. I just graduated from Claremont McKenna College with an econ degree. Um, I have past experience in two startups. One of them is a fintech startup. And then afterwards, I went to a private equity to intern for like roughly eight months. And I do dabble a little bit in the blockchain space, including writing a research paper on Bitcoin's adoption in Venezuela and also network for almost like a year in this space and then introducing some of the startups to investors that I know. Very nice. And we'll definitely get into the paper and everything in a, in a little bit. Um, but like, what, what have you done specifically in terms of like your VC, like funding work um, with crypto and outside of crypto? Yeah. So um, with crypto, I do have get my hands on a few projects, for example, Bayview and uh, Butterfly. And I do know the founders quite well. And then most of the crypto projects are currently raising funds. So because of my past experience in the startup, I did fundraising for the startup that I worked at before. So I reached out to some of the uh, existing investors network that I know to kind of pitch to them or like say, hey, look at this deal. It looks interesting and they can take it from Very there. nice. Is, is that like the field that you're going to continue working in or are you going to branch out of that into something else? I think that will always be a field that I'll be engaging in. But as far as like in the future as a proper um, profession, I'm not sure yet. Very cool. Well, you definitely have a pretty cool background in terms of VC and funding and whatnot. And you went, to, we went to school together. You went to yeah. uh, Claremont McKenna and got your degree in economics, correct? Yes. Very cool. So definitely have some questions for you in terms of blockchain um, and want to get your perspective on some stuff um, from an econ background, from a VC type of background. Um, and since we're on the topic of where you've worked and whatnot, what is the sentiment kind of been like around crypto for a lot of these VC companies? The sentiment is like uh, people are kind of scared whenever people mention the name of like crypto or blockchain because of what happened last year with the ICO craze that you just have a white paper uh, most of the time you don't even have a product yet and then you are able to raise so much amount of money and then people start trading your coins and then later it comes to a crash with the bear market especially investors are really risk averse most of the time and uh, there's this fear factor in the market as well so people are kind of scared when they mention blockchain they would just kind of pull away so right now the market I would say that VCs are very conservative so in terms of for projects to get funding, 
first thing, they wouldn't say that they're a blockchain company, but focus more on the product itself and then how they're able to better serve the market. And we would say it's a value proposition in order to get funding. Right. Do you think that they're very conservative and hesitant to invest in any of these blockchain projects or these blockchain startups that are starting to crop up mainly because of a lack of education because they don't really understand what blockchain can do and they only hear negative news all the time or do they already have a predetermined position on it yeah i think that's a really great question because education is definitely a thing most of the people kind of mixed up uh coins and blockchain itself they thought like blockchain is just a coin that has crazy volatilities but people have to know that like we talked about earlier before that blockchain itself is technology can fundamentally revolutionize whatever infrastructure that we live on these days and make it more efficient and once people understand that to understand the underlying technology instead of the coins sometimes would be a byproduct of a project they can you know look at the deals in a different way i would say Right. And in my opinion, at least from what I assume VCs are, and and from their perspective, when they look at blockchain, I think they think of tokens and ICOs more than they do what blockchain can actually do because there's been so far and few actual products and services out there to invest in um, with very few companies doing something um, as of 2019. I mean, Pundi X is one company. Uh, BitPay has been around for a while, but I mean, other than some financial products that are being offered, there isn't really anything for them to invest into other than like ICOs and tokens and stuff like that. But uh, part of that is the negative sentiment that ICOs have had over the last couple of years. Um, A lot of the fraud they've committed and a lot of the negativity they've brought to the overall market. And Tokens have so many different utilities in terms of potentially being backed by a commodity versus representing a company and potentially being labeled a security. Um, And without any regulatory guidance, there really really isn't any um, incentive for a VC to really take a hard look at it because they don't really know what they're investing in. In my opinion, I think that's what I'm seeing from them. Yeah, I think this is a really great point. One... um characteristics of uh, investors across like no matter what kind of stuff that you invest in is like you have to know what you're investing really well let's say they that's that's kind of the pull factor from the vcs right because of the regulatory uh, perspective you have all of these tax that you don't know how to account for like the accounting stuff and then you have this product that you don't know if it's actually working, if it's actually have market adoption, especially like VCs would like to see, depends on like, you know, their risk preferences, but they usually want to see some sort of revenues. And if you don't have all of that and you get this product that you have, you don't quite know how it's supposed to work yet. They would still go with like their habits of, let's say, investing in robotics and all that stuff that they know well, instead of, you know, looking at something totally different. Yeah. I mean, robotics is easy. They know that they're investing in a damn robot. There isn't anything (laughs) very um, confusing about that. Um, But when it comes to blockchain, it's kind of one of those things that has so many different uses that 
blockchain is almost like a general term and you need to be yes. incredibly specific in terms of what it can do. I mean, we're anywhere from ICOs and tokens to decentralized applications to uh, decentralized organizations, governments, treasuries, um, and then smart contracts is like a subcategory of what blockchain can do that leads yes. to all that stuff. And then smart contracts can do like a, a billion other things. Um, I know supply chain is a ver- very popular field um, in study of blockchain as well. Um, but I mean, it's growing tremendously. I mean, despite the fact that there is a little bit of a lack of education and VCs are cautious to put money into it. I mean, blockchain and developing slash engineering jobs are um, growing tremendously year over year. And actually, I believe, I think according to LinkedIn, the uh, blockchain is the top paying job in software development, the category of software development right now. And then it's also the fastest growing job in America ahead of, um, I hope I'm saying this right, TensorFlow, which is um, what's needed for artificial intelligence and AI and there's a lot of what uh, Google looks for and Apple looks for, uh, for building out AI and neural networks and stuff like that. So, and that's been a huge forefront uh, for tech the last five years or so, especially as Siri has grown and everything and Watson has grown. It's definitely been a field of interest for a lot of people, but for blockchain to really take that number one spot front and center as a number one job that people are looking for that's in demand. It shows that the growth is there and that the potential for it is coming. Um, But education really kind of seems like a barrier to entry, not just for these students that are trying to become developers and engineers for different blockchain projects, but also for these VCs. Um, In terms of the VC, yeah, in terms of the VCs, in your past work, do you think that they just need more education on blockchain and like some guidance and consulting or are they kind of just, it's above their head? Like what's the situation Uh, there? I think one is education. Usually, you know, VCs are super busy. They, if assuming that let's say if they already have like a really good deal flow, there's no incentive for them to look elsewhere. They better just do something well if they already know to generate the revenues and then um another thing quite interesting of like because we do notice there's a gap of like so-called lack of funding from like the capital space we would strictly define that into the uh, vcs and pe's all that kind of funds and then there's a growing of demand of like these developers in these specific areas so when we observe the gap the reason why there's like increasing demand of this developer is because large institutions and corporations do see the value of blockchains. And then let's say Bank of America have like 50 something patents on this technology and uh, JP Morgan's have their stable coins, all that stuff. And um, I think right now in the investing space, corporations and then financial, these large financial banks and stuff, are taking more of a lead in terms of investing because it's more like a strategic investment. They know its value. They know how it should be incorporated in their existing business to increase its capacity, efficiency, all that kind of stuff. So what I have observed is that 
a lot of these large institutions are putting money into these smaller projects that they think can potentially be part of the assets of the company. So what they usually do is like they identify a really good startup that can provide them with the technology that they don't necessarily have the resources in the house to develop the project itself. They invest the money to have the startup do the thing and then they work together and in the end, the exit for the startup would be incredible. It's just getting buy out by this um, large corporation. That's usually how it works. Right. And I think all that's going to happen in time. But I want to go back to what you said about patents, because I think that's also pretty interesting. So I know there's a number of companies that have jumped in and tried to buy patents um, mm-hmm. or not buy, but get patents um, for different areas in blockchain. It's kind of interesting because I don't know how they're going to enforce that. Uh, a lot of these ideas around blockchain are going to be very general use ideas. And a lot of these blockchains, they don't have a top-down governance um, where someone's going to be able to tell them that tell whoever's developing a blockchain or is going to be able to have authority over a blockchain to make it do something or not make it do something. Like I, I don't see the point in having a patent over over blockchain, it would have to be like some type of private sidechain type of development or some type of um, technical um, mathematical type paper that's like way over my head. Like I could see a patent for something like that, um, but they haven't been like fully um, public about what they're getting their patents for. And they've also, I know like Amazon, Facebook and whatnot, they've gone out and they've bought all kinds of URLs for Bitcoin and Ethereum that have to do with their name um, for obvious reasons and stuff like that and um, and subdomains. And they even went into the Ethereum name service and got a whole bunch of .ether names. Um, so they're obviously thinking about this stuff way ahead of time. Um, but it's it's interesting. It's interesting to see why why they're doing that why they're not promoting it more right now and trying to jump into it because it's such a big keyword i know blockchain back last couple of years was everyone put blockchain in their name long island ice tea changed their name to long island blockchain for publicity because it was such a big keyword um same thing with bitcoin bitcoin was a big keyword and i'm just i'm just interesting that they haven't jumped on the bandwagon like they have with other technologies um, in promoting it. Um, have you seen any of that from your work at all? Uh, I, I haven't seen it from my work, but I do saw some of that on the internet. So I think on the take of why they are buying all these or like acquiring all these patents, but not quite actively developing a technology themselves. I think it's more like a defensive strategy, we would say, to secure a marketplace for the future, but because of you know certain risks that's associated with it, that they don't want to at the at least at the moment to actively develop it. But they want to make sure like, you know, in the future, let's say something happened, they will be able to block out all the people who are let's say, doing some projects as falls within the realm of the patent. Right. And from a defensive standpoint, that makes a lot of sense because obviously they don't want people 
holding URLs and patents hostage for high dollar amounts, which I know a lot of people in the crypto space are trying to do. Um, and I do it too. I mean, you if you have dot ether addresses that are going to be directed to um, payment addresses and to websites, once um, functionality for stuff like IPFS, uh, IPFS for the internet and decentralized storage for the internet um, and like the swarm network for uh, Ethereum, when that kind of stuff goes live, you're going to see a lot of these dot ether addresses and very similar ones that are built on blockchain um, on Ethereum's blockchain and other blockchains allow people to send money to your name rather than your address. But you're also going to have people directed to uh, your website or whatever website you want um, using dot ether. And I, there's a lot of people that are buying those dot ether addresses up because they can kind of see ahead of time how valuable that's going to be. And I don't know. I just, I just feel like some of these bigger corporations would be jumping on that bandwagon, trying to promote it a bit more. To me, it's just interesting, but I mean, from a defensive standpoint, it makes a lot of sense. You don't want someone holding it hostage for like 500 Ethereum or like 50 Bitcoin and then like forcing a company to have to pony up a bunch of money for it, which I know a lot of people did dot com boom and are trying to do again. Yeah. But yeah, it's it's just a whole interesting situation. But one thing I do want to get into um, is your paper that you did on Venezuela um, and the possible correlation it could have with Bitcoin volume. Um, I know we talked about that quite a bit before we started yeah. the podcast, but it's it's really interesting. And I know Venezuela is a big topic right now, especially Bitcoin and crypto down there. So I kind of want to jump into that. Um and hear from your perspective and what you found out from your paper. So do you want to kind of give like a general overview? Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, So my paper, it's on whether black market exchange rate and inflation would influence the Bitcoin trading volume and then prices in Venezuela. And uh, it's quite interesting in Venezuela. It's because it's experiencing hyperinflation with like, according to... uh, one of the data uh, data points from a uh, billion prices project in started by Harvard and MIT, they reported that in 2018 February, the inflation rate is like close to 180 percent, and um, that's a lot of totalitarian ruling as well. And then the, most of the government's uh, revenue comes from uh, ex- exports of oil so um it's a really messy situation to be in and then with hyperinflation people aren't able to buy love to the necessities that they need to survive so that's why i think like the reason why i started this topic is because i think bitcoin would have some special cases here because its volatility seems relatively smaller compared to its domestic currency sovereign bolivar and the finding that I have is quite interesting. It seems to be that the price and volume react a lot more to black market exchange rate compared to um, inflation rate. According to my analysis, inflation the correlation with inflation rate is practically immaterial, which is one thing that we can address here. Why is it like that? Why is it going a, kind of the result? It's against our intuition of that the price and volume would increase because of this 
hyperinflation. Right. And I found that very interesting when we were talking, uh, talking about it. Um, and it's, it makes a lot of sense though, once you think about it, because your paper was on the correlation between the hyperinflation in Venezuela and the volume of Bitcoin, correct? Yes. So I think a lot of people where they get confused is they, they see that the Bitcoin price has a massive premium on it in Venezuela and the demand is super high. Um, so naturally you'd think there's higher volume, but that doesn't necessarily dictate the price, um, wherever Bitcoin is at, um, in Venezuela specific situation. I mean, there aren't a whole lot of mainstream options to buy Bitcoin. So, and the boulevard is worth relatively nothing at this point. Um, (laughs) so a, a lot of people, when they're pouring their money into Bitcoin, they have very few options to do it and, um, helping you find some of that data. Uh, local bitcoins was the best way to get it and one thing i did notice in the data is that i mean local bitcoins did not have a tremendous amount of volume per yeah. capita for venezuela at least compared to other places despite the price having a massive premium on it so and, and we were talking about this but for transparency and for people that will eventually hear this um if you did the paper again in the future how would you change it? Would you focus on the correlation between the demand for Bitcoin instead of the correlation to the volume? Because we all know that the demand is super high and there might be better studies that could be done in terms of correlation. Um, The volume just doesn't give us enough information on whether or not um, it it is a factor. The hyperinflation is in the Bitcoin buying. Um, So, in your opinion, yeah. is that something you'd look at in the future? Yes, I think that's a really great point. Um, that because uh, for the volume, it just sets like how many transactions are closed. And then we, because uh, local Bitcoin is over the counter and then we don't know how much supply, there might be limited supply. All of these data are not public. So we can only see like, okay, how many transactions are closed. But let's say if we can see there's like a huge gap between supply and demand, then we can actually put in the supply and demand as part of the regressors. And to see, you know, whether, because demand kind of entails how many people actually wanting this thing. So I I would expect, speculate that there would be a higher correlation between the demand and inflation instead of how much transactions are closed. That's a really great point though, that you mentioned it. Yeah, it's just, it stuck out to me because I know a lot of people ask me about Venezuela. I know it's such a hot topic right now, including uh, crypto down there and especially Bitcoin's price um, in Venezuela. And when, yeah, when you brought up the study, it didn't make sense at first. And then when I thought about it, it made a lot more sense actually, because volume doesn't necessarily contribute to the price. It's it's the overall demand. So, I mean, yeah, it makes a lot more sense. Um, but another thing I noticed, um, not specifically regarding the paper, but Bitcoin in general with Venezuela, when I, when I was traveling, um, last year when I was in Colombia and then when I was in Argentina and Buenos Aires, um, and then Panama, there's a lot of Venezuelans that have left the country and, they were only able to leave the country and start a new lifestyle because they were able to get their value out of the boulevard, out of their property, 
um, and out of their commodities um, and into Bitcoin. And every single person I met that was from Venezuela that had um, left and immigrated to either Colombia or Argentina or in some cases into Panama, um, which I think Panama has cut off now because they've had too many people moving there from mm-hmm. Venezuela. But the people that have been moving out of Venezuela to start a new life and to get, get away from the chaos, they've been putting their money and their life savings into Bitcoin because it's helped them move and start a new lifestyle. Yeah. Um, and I think that's a very big use case and it can be attributed to the fact that it's border it's completely borderless. Bitcoin anonymous. is not lim- – it's anonymous. Um, well, it's kind of anonymous. It's um, anonymous. It's anonymous in the sense that if you don't tell someone outside of the transaction whose address is whose, yeah, it's anonymous. But as soon as someone figures out that an address belongs to you, then it can easily be tracked. It's not like it's not like Zcash or Horizon doesn't use zk snarks or anything like that. There's no zero proof of knowledge tech behind it, um, at least right now. So Bitcoin is not truly anonymous, but if you're not fully transparent with your transactions outside of person A and person B, then yeah, it's kind of anonymous. But even more so, Bitcoin's benefits are the fact that it's borderless. You can take it anywhere. It's relatively secure um, in terms of being able to not have anyone point a gun at you and be able to take it. Um, <laughs> I, I, was, I was having a conversation with someone the other day and they were arguing that Bitcoin's no different than cash because if someone pointed a gun at you and demanded your money, you, you'd hand over the money. Or if someone pointed their gun at you and demanded your Bitcoin, you'd have to hand over your Bitcoin. My argument was that if, if someone pointed a gun at you and I refused to give them my money and they shot me, they could still pull the money off of my dead body. And they could just shoot me anyways and still pull the cash off my dead body. The difference with Bitcoin is if I refuse to give them my Bitcoin and they shoot me, they There's can't no pull Bitcoin, get the Bitcoin, right? They can't pull Bitcoin off my dead body. Yeah, exactly. So Bitcoin is secure in the sense that you're the only person that has access to it. And while someone could point a gun at your head, they, they can't kill you and take it off your dead body. So <laughs> It's kind of funny to think about, but I mean, at the same time, that is a good point to bring up too. Um, compared it is. To I want to add on to that of the, uh, yeah, I was going to add on to the fact that you have basically, unless the chain got hacked, but it's like a totally different story, assuming that it's not hacked, you have basically total control of your assets. The whole point I'm raising this here is because, um, Venezuela has exerted strong capital control on like especially capital outflow and stuff. Imagine that you want to flee the country, you want to go somewhere else and you want a way to transfer all of your assets. Let's say you only have USD. There are two ways that you can do it. You can fly out with a bunch of cash on in your pockets and then you'll probably get stopped at the border. That's okay. Option A is done or B, you go through like the uh, banking route of sending money abroad and then and immediately would get the alert within the banking system in Venezuela. And it's highly possible you won't be able to move all of your stuff abroad. So Bitcoin would provide a really relatively, I guess, like secure way to move your stuff abroad without like alarming the uh, central government. Because I also heard that um, 
in Venezuela. They roll out this thing called Fatherland's card. It's kind of a mix of credit card and ID with it. So right now, there are a lot of places like you have to buy let's say necessity that like toilet papers eggs whatever that is with this fatherland's car if you don't have that you would not be able to purchase anything so it's kind of way to enforce everybody to live within the system to be fully monitored and bitcoin gives like yep. a leeway out of that yeah venezuela has especially maduro um he's he's pushed venezuela to adopt crypto but i mean there's a reason for it um they're under heavy, heavy sanctions and they're trying to, um, most of the world's trying to squeeze Maduro out of power um, as peacefully as possible. Um, and the best way for them to do that is sanctions and to create um, blockades um, on certain commodities like like oil, for example, and whatnot and trade. But uh, crypto presents an interesting issue and Maduro has really latched onto that um, with creating the petrodollar um, yeah. they opened the, the Patria exchange for citizens to buy crypto and supposedly that might be driving some prices up, um, especially with Litecoin and Dash. Cause I know Dash has a huge presence down there. Um, and I, I don't know if what, in terms of crypto in Venezuela, I don't know if it's something that they're going to adopt or because it's really being uh, thrust upon them by the current regime. Um, but one thing I do talk about all the time is eventually Maduro is going to be out of power. It's, this is not yeah. going to continue. Um, it, it's going to change. We're going to have regime change at some point in Venezuela. And what's going to be left over is a forced upon crypto ecosystem. And likely what's going to happen is there are going to be all kinds of uh, government incentives for businesses to come to Venezuela and invest money, probably tax-free yeah. over a long period of time, um, probably incredibly low capital gains rates and things like that. Um, some really attractive offers. Property prices will be incredibly dirt cheap. Um, whatever regime comes in next or whatever government's instituted next. And they're going to have this massive crypto infrastructure. Um, and it, it could be a good thing for them in the long term. And it's interesting. So there aren't a lot of countries out there that have that kind of crypto infrastructure. Yeah. And it, it might be something beneficial to them. Um, they might, the people might be able to build off of in the futures. And especially around land, they're going to really need uh, blockchain tech to help them figure out who owns what because there's been a lot of people that left venezuela and left their property and their land and they probably left their their land titles behind and they don't have proof of ownership and there's probably somebody else living there um or it might be destroyed and burnt down to the ground who knows absolute chaos there <laughs> so i mean <laughs> Yeah, when I, I was know. looking at the data, it's crazy. Like they have this hyperinflation, and then they they are having this desperate attempt to curb the inflation is by removing, I think, like like six zero after whatever VEF they have and switch it to like VEB. So like each, let's say, each cup of coffee was supposed to be something like one million of VEF, and then after cutting that, it would be significantly less. But in terms of percentage increase, because like inflation isn't a percentage term, right? Nothing has really changed. So 
like you said, yes, Maduro is not really going to last for a long time. His supporting rate is incredibly low. And then you hit on a really interesting point is like they do need a lot of like foreign capital investments and then like, you know, people to manage some of the business there. The reason why I mentioned this is like um, Venezuela, the economic downturn started from, I think it's like in the 50s, initially in back in the 40s and 20s and Venezuela is one of the most wealthy economy in the and uh, in, uh, in South America because a lot of foreign investors come in to help them to help like extract the oil boost up the local economy and mm-hmm. then the state yeah. start taking over the operations and due to like poor management all that stuff it's it's already laying the ground of kind of like a potential failure, and then after oil crisis, because most of their the government revenues come from exports of oil, and when oil price crashed, they suffered awfully, and then with like the ill management of the state oil company, it just got even worse. That's how like Venezuela's economy start in this like downward spiral. And then this is kind of like a historical lessons to learn that yes, they do need um, foreign like capital and technology to help the economy. And at the same time, I think they would also learn that instead of entirely relying on them, they need to put some of their own people in these foreign companies to learn how they operate and bring those kind of like business style operating system into their existing infrastructure. So to have right. like a you know sustainable long term growth instead right. of like what had happened before like decades ago. Yeah, well, decades ago, I mean, for a very long time, Venezuela was like the Miami of South America. They, they used to have, well, they used to be one of the wealthiest countries because of their um, oil reserves, which are some of the largest yeah. oil reserves in the world, if not the largest. I'm not it is the largest, sure on that, actually. But, it is right, the but I mean that's. Right. But that's where a lot of their wealth derived from for a long time until they had um, Hugo Chavez and Maduro that really kind of changed where their country was heading. Um, And that's very long and complicated topic. But I mean, in terms of oil, that all that oil is still there. And it's almost surprising that their country could take such a downturn with how important oil is to our world and how much demand for oil there still is. I mean, like solar power and wind energy, clean energies, green energies, they're all um, still a very small fraction of what is used to power the US and a large parts of the world today. Um, and oil is highly dependent on, upon. Yes. Um, so, go ahead. Yeah. So on this note, I think there are two factors why, you know, we know that it has such a, there's a high demand of uh, oil around the world and then they have like this large reserve why didn't they do well two factors one is ill management second very important is like um the crude oil in venezuela are actually really heavy that entails like you need you need a lot of capital to extract it to to make it into somewhat that's usable so that's mainly why like you know even though they export a lot but the revenue comes with it in percentage-wise is not that great because of this huge amount of cost related to cleaning whatever processing that they use to process the crude oil just because it's really heavy. 
I do want your opinion on on the oil situation in Venezuela. Um, from a blockchain perspective, I mean, we know that ICOs and uh, tokenization has kind of gotten a bad rap the last couple of years because of all the fraud and whatnot that's gone on. Um, but at the same time, it offers a really interesting solution and a future solution that's going to stick um, indefinitely. And with tokenization, it allows you to take just about anything and um, and, and to tokenize it, to, to break it down into smaller sums, to potentially use it as a backing for a currency. And what tokenization brings back is the topic of should we go to, back to a currency that's backed by gold should we go to more creative um, situations where we have a currency maybe backed by oil and things like that and i think with venezuela's crypto infrastructure that is slowly being forced upon them and that they'll develop in the future after regime change in your opinion do you think that as business goes back to Venezuela in the future and more money pours into Venezuela, um, and if the crypto infrastructure is still there, do you think that they might have one of the very first use cases in tokenizing the oil that's in the ground? Because it's much cheaper to leave the oil in the ground than to frack it and pull it out of the ground. Um, and when they're not using it, it, it is a commodity that they can monetize why not use those oil reserves to back a currency in the same way that you use gold to back a currency or that has backed currency in the past? Um, it definitely yes. stabilizes the economy that way. Do you have, do, have you thought about that or is that, do you have an opinion on that? Yeah. Um, my personal opinion is, uh, I think that's a really great question to begin with. Uh, like, um, Venezuela actually do have their own oil-backed cryptocurrency called Petro, but the reason why it's not really doing so well, it's because government credibility is incredibly important in this part. So we are looking at, let's say, if a government is has so bad of credibility in terms of like uh, regulating the economy and then like how to manage their oil business nobody's going to use that currency because fundamentally of a currency is like you spend this money you are sure you expect that the other person would receive it but when nobody really trusts in the current re regime people are not going to use the currency that's why the petrol coin right now is not doing so well but it does have a really bright future like let's say not not particularly petrol coin, but whatever infrastructure in place of a blockchain infrastructure with the oil backing it, and then uh, as like a we would say a central banked uh, cryptocurrency that's backed by oil. It's actually a really hot topic right now. I just read about a um, a research paper published by one of the directors from uh, St. Louis Fed in the U.S. He does like kind of in the paper advocates that uh, the possibility of central banks cryptocurrency would be really great. The reason being that it's all on the ledger, it's all on the like, digital basis, very easy for you to see how much coins or money has been circulating in the economy. It's very easy to use like you know monetary policies to regulate the economy. So that's a big thing. And it's specifically useful for Venezuela as well, because they do already start experimenting with stuff like this. All they need is like, you know, a better management.
per se, and a government with a much better credibility so people can actually start adopting it. Right. There's also the possibility that they could become, because they're in a terrible, terrible situation there, and they've hit absolute rock bottom and have gone lower. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> they they do seem to fit the bill for a use case, um, potentially for a decentralized government. Um, and what blockchain presents um, through smart contracts is the ability to do decentralized organizations, um, decentralized treasuries, where there is no centralized power controlling that, implementing laws or anything like that. And it creates a truly uh, democratized economy um, and government. And you can argue back and forth whether or not that's good or bad to have absolute true democracy like that. Um, but there's a lot of things you can build in as safeguards and you can operate as a normal country. Um, but a decentralized government would be a very interesting situation. Do you, have you thought about that as well on top of tokenization? Because the people seem very desperate and they might not be trusting of a new government to come in and they've had such hardship and it's embarrassing for a country that has done so well in the past. Could they be one of the first use cases for a decentralized government or possibly a sub part of their government, like a decentralized treasury or a decentralized bank? Um, do you have any thoughts on That's that? That's a very interesting, interesting thought. Uh, just personally, my thought, because uh, I'm relatively more conservative, I think there are some use case, like depends on what you're using blockchain for, right? I think some of the projects could be, let's say, for, for uh, I guess, like a web address, that kind of stuff, something that's more on the gray area. It would be great for decentralization, but in terms of running a country, politics, economy, like monetary system, all that kind of stuff, I still believe that it should be more centralized in a sense. Because right now, if we're looking at Venezuela, the supporting rate of the opposition leader, who's like a self-proclaimed um, president, it's he has pretty high supporting rate. And then like in Venezuela, I do think that they would want a strong leader. It's just like the the difference between the current leader and the one before uh, Hugo is that Hugo actually has a large supporting rate, even though we would like from the Western perspective, really see him as a dictator. But he does really captures people's heart and people do love that there is like a lead in the country. So I don't think sure. that, that I'm, it's I'm going to sure change that... drastically. No, I, yeah. I, I, under, I understand that. Politics gets a little bit more complicated and then, then you get into psychology of how people think. And, and, you know, that's one of the downfalls of democracy sometimes if a mass of people tend to believe a similar idea and they think that that's good for them, but in reality it might not be good for them. It can lead to terrible outcomes in yeah. terms of economies and governments long-term. And that's where a lot of countries get themselves in trouble. Um, economics is very, very complicated. It's not a simple topic. Um, so when these politicians, they put out all these ideas and they try to get support for their ideas, they, a lot of the people might like the politician. They might like the idea. Uh, they might like um, what they're proposing to do and what they want to implement. And same thing goes for in Venezuela. Politics is politics wherever you go. But 
in terms of financials and like economics, um, it's not something that's easy to grasp. And for a lot of people, they don't fully understand on a big macro scale how economics works from country to country, from big corporation to big corporation. It gets very complicated. And I think when when voting, they they vote with their hearts more than they do with their heads. And I wish I could vote with my heart all the time. But I mean, at the same time, you need to vote with your brain. You got to vote with your head. Yeah. Um, and not a lot of people in mass do that. So I'm, I understand that they probably really did like and loved Hugo Chavez for a number of reasons. And he had, he was very popular. It doesn't mean Hugo Chavez understood economically what the country yes, needed. Yes, yes, that's, that's exactly where they correct. went wrong. But that's why I bring up decentralized government. And it doesn't have to be a completely decentralized government, but certain parts like a decentralized bank, a decentralized central bank or decentralized treasury would do a country a lot of good because um, economics and finance and monetary policy is generally what drives most of these countries into the dirt and is what cripples countries and is why um, Venezuela is being crippled right now. It's why, um, Iraq's being crippled. Turkey's being crippled. Argentina's being crippled and numerous other countries financially through inflation. Um, they're just being destroyed and degraded from the inside out. And if you compare that to the best use case of all, which is Bitcoin, which actually has its monetary policy set in stone, on the blockchain so that it's deflationary over a very long period of time, Bitcoin, that's part of the reason why Bitcoin has so much value. And that's part of the reason why Bitcoin has appreciated in value from pennies to nearly $20,000 in a 10-year period, which is incredible. But part of that is a set monetary policy and the fact that it can't be manipulated, no one controls it. And I think for a country like Venezuela, it would do them a lot of good to institute a smart contract to run their treasury or to run their monetary system or to help set them help set semi-permanent monetary policy that wouldn't hurt their country. So that's kind of where I, why I bring up the decentralized government part of it. I think there's a lot of use case for Venezuela to to consider that. That's very interesting. Even though I'm not totally agree on that, but I, I do see like what, what you're talk uh, like aiming at here. Yeah, I don't have to agree on everything. I mean, but time will definitely tell for yeah. sure. Um, the other topic I wanted to get into was um, Bitmain a little bit. There's a lot going on with Bitmain. Um, I know from talking to you that you've had an interesting experience thus far with Bitmain, which might be interesting to a lot of the people that listen to this podcast. Um, so from what you can talk about, um, what what has been your affiliation with Bitmain? Uh, to be honest, I will not be able to quite comment on that. All I can disclose is like, I do have some interaction with uh, the executives in Bitmain. And then as far as I know of the company that I can disclose, it's a very secretive organization with quite strong government ties. And, uh, you know, a lot of the uh, news out there that two CEOs are stepping down. It's it's just rumors. It's actually not happening. Right. I want to touch on that too. But in terms of secretive, do you mean secretive from like a Chinese perspective and the way they do business or secretive that's 
a bit more uncommon for a company in general? Um, I don't think it's that uncommon. Uh, how do I put this? It's like there are a lot of information that they do not want to like, disclose, which like as a private company, you are not obligated to disclose unless you're traded publicly. And um, I guess that's how they run their business. And then, you know, if you want to roll out a product or whatever, and you have such dominant, I guess, um, market capitalization, uh, I don't see why it's not a good strategy to adopt. You know, you put something out, everybody's like, let's say they announce like this new model and people would be just lining up like crazy. I, I think that's a pretty interesting strategy, I would say, but I, I, I'm not like, you know, for or against it. It's just kind of describing as a matter of fact that it is right. what it is. Yeah, The U.S. and China do a lot of business and trade with each other. And it's interesting because the ideals are very, very polar opposite. I mean, in America, it is very, very capitalist. And in China, it is very, very communist um, and on an economic level. And I've, I've done business with a number of um, blockchain companies and have worked with um, some, I, I won't name names just for the sake of it, but they all seem to have very similar mindsets. Um, they, they seem to do business on uh, trust and honor, which is really interesting. So in America, there is no really trust and honor in business. You sign a contract or you sign an NDA. Mm -hmm. Um, it's because it's very litigious here, but with a lot of these, um, Chinese companies and a lot of people that I've worked with that work for these Chinese companies, their mindset is just very, very different. And they're very, um, protective over their IP and over things that they consider IP, which in America would price points that they've already made public and things like that. Yeah. And again, I won't name names for, cause I just want to be polite cause I do do some work with those businesses and companies, but the sentiments is really interesting um, from a Chinese perspective and the way they do business. Is that just because of um, the fact that they're largely a communist country now, or do you think it's has deeper roots and kind of their, um, I can't remember the word. Um, <laughs> I, I get what you is mean it, though. Is it part uh, of the culture interesting question that you or is it part of the to. regime? Uh, I think I think it's a cultural difference. I wouldn't necessarily pinpoint it to be communist. There are like multiple different communists like everywhere. The thing is like, um, I, to speak to my own experience uh, in China, it's like people who are holding a lot of resources and power, they are really a tight community, which is true in almost everywhere in the world. And um, the reason for not signing contracts and all that stuff, because sometimes there's no need for that kind of things, because you know that if you leak out some sort of information, whatever, that's, you know that you have a lot at stake because you're kind of in touch with these really high position people so that's why like you automatically kind of just keep your mouth shut to keep everything confidential just this I, right. I don't i don't quite see a point of signing an nda on this level and it's like that's interesting though yeah it's very tight close i would say like more human relationship driven economy to a certain extent for example how i would say that is for a company to get listed in the u.s the price of a stock 
it's subject to change of the market. The market decides it. And China is totally different. It's like you kind of negotiate the price of the stock to like a certain bureau. And then you set that and it will be exactly that when it goes public. That that's that's kind of the fundamental differences that we can see here about like, you know, it's a relationship driven. I wouldn't say put a big word on relationship driven economy, but it does play a huge part in it. A few minutes ago you mentioned that there's just rumors regarding certain people stepping down uh, from the company. Are you able to talk about who those people are or should we just assume because I think most of us know at least one of them? Yeah, we can just say the executives who like the market has been rumored to be set down, they are not stepping down. That's all I can say. Okay. Yeah, we don't have to get into names. But I, I find, yeah, it's interesting. Um, do you think that's more so a play on uh, like a smoke and mirrors type thing where they don't want people knowing what they're going to do next? Or do you think that there's something else going on based on what you can talk about? Uh, to be honest, I won't be able to quite comment on the subject because I'm not part of it. But yeah, I think it's more like, uh, from my personal speculation, it's just more like Bitmain didn't put out any type of information because they're huge. Everybody's looking at them. So somebody speculates something and then it just start rolling like wildfire and people start seeing like, you know, key executives are stepping down, but it's just not the case. Yeah, it's interesting. And I, personally, I think it's because they're just trying to wait out this long, uh, quote unquote, crypto winter that we've had since the beginning of 2018, where we're down like 85, 90% across the board. Um, but they don't seem to be slowing down. I mean, at least publicly, they've, um, they're moving back to China. Like they left China because China didn't have, um, well, China was trying to, is banning crypto for the most part, largely in the country. And they've cracked down a lot on a lot of mining operations inside the country. Um, and they packed up and moved over to North America and in the U S and then it, it looks like that they're opening up a massive mining operation, um, back in China. Um, it's really interesting that they're doing that. Um, you wouldn't think that they'd be able to do that unless they had the political connections or the influence to do so. That's a very interesting point. Um, but I will not be able to comment on that. (laughs) It's open to interpretation, but I can comment on another thing is the location they're setting up the mining facility. It's in, um, Sichuan province. It's like, it's near Chenghua Ba, which is like a really huge dam there. Um, one interesting point of why uh, I'm just speaking for my own speculation there is because it's Sichuan is a, we are talking about photography here, as like it's in the basin, basically a flat land surrounded by mountains. And then there will be a lot of seasoning rivers running. And in May, it would be starting a rain, rainy season that there will be generate a lot of these cheap electricity. So I guess that's, that's why they're sending it up there for cheap electricity. Right. Well, I mean, obviously they want to tap into hydropower. 
Um, because I mean, at least with my experience, um, and proof of work and mining, um, electricity is key. You have to get, uh, low electricity rates and hydropower is the best way to do it because you can get rates as low as three cents, depending on where you're at. Um, and you'd be able to, if you can lock up blocks of electricity and contracts, you can also get cheaper rates on top of that. And Facebook and Apple have massive data centers out in central Oregon where I live part of the time. And I know they do this, um, firsthand they're, they're getting massive blocks of electricity and locking up massive contracts and, um, they get incredibly good deals on everything. And in general, electricity is a little bit cheaper in central Oregon, um, compared to most places in the U S. Um, but it's, Interesting that they didn't go to Quebec or somewhere where they have some of the lowest electricity prices in the world because they run hydropower. Um, there's a lot of places they could have gone that would have been more economically suitable for them, especially if they're launching like a 100,000 ASIC mining operation or whatever they put out publicly. Um, so it's interesting that they chose to go back to China for that or that they, they can and the government allows them to go back to China for that. And I'm just assuming um, through public speculation that it's because they have very close ties with the government and there's probably some deals being cut like most companies do, um, which is interesting. But at the same time, I mean, we were also talking about the IPO earlier um, and the fact that they're moving and doing such a large operation in China um, but the IPO is kind of an iffy thing and it is much more public. Do you think that they're going to go through with the IPO or do you think that they're not ready as a country? Um, for or, no, a company, excuse me, a company. <laughs> uh, on that, I do notice that, you know, uh, a lot of these big uh, crypto companies do try to go public and then they have been experiencing certain roadblocks. So I do notice that like a few crypto companies have went public through backdoor listing. It's basically you buy up a majority of shares in the public traded company is basically a shell on the platform. And then you go in and roll out all of your assets in there to go through kind of like what it's basically quite self explanatory suggested that backdoor listing and that way to go public. That's that's I've been observing that on the market. Do you have any questions or is there anything that you were wondering about or that you want to talk about on the podcast in regards to uh, fintech and whatnot? Yeah, I'm wondering like, you know, the use case for small businesses, blockchain in general, because I know that you work quite closely with individuals and like a small business. Right. What specifically though? I know we talked about um, blockchain being a really general topic and then having tons of subcategories. Yeah. Like the use cases for these like smaller businesses. Right. Like what stage are they? Are they still in the education phase or are they like actively implementing like, you know, some of the other products out there into their existing business? I like for at least with the blockchains, um, I like to call them projects because that's basically what they are. They are projects. Um, they're not offering a service or a product yet. Most of them, there are companies like Pundi X, um, 
um, Coinbase offers exchange services and storage and whatnot. And Ledger is obviously very popular. BitPay is very popular. And there's another, uh, um, numerous others that are um, starting to come out and starting to do stuff. And most of them are financial products. Like the market's very, very early. Um, in terms of blockchain, there's the industry is going to be very, very big because blockchain is very broad in what it can do. It'll have impacts on real estate. It'll have um, impacts on a government level. It'll have impacts, obviously, financially um, in the gaming industry, in the marijuana industry, um, in P2P, uh, B2B type transactions. Um, You'll see a lot of private blockchains come out for different companies that will want to have a blockchain or a supply chain for what they do specifically outside of crypto. Um, You'll see a lot of food being tracked on the supply chain. A lot of restaurants will want to track um, the shrimp that they catch or the fish that they caught or, or was a cow or chicken that's being served at that restaurant treated fairly? What were they fed? How long were they um, alive before the, um, before they were taken to slaughter? What are uh, the supply chain will be a big one for sure, and in food in the restaurant industry, and then in terms of goods and services, the um, supply chain will be very helpful in verifying where things have been. It'll be very big in the um, post office sector um, in mail, so. And that's just scratching the surface. And then smart contracts can do just about anything you want it to do and can do just about anything any other contract can do, Um, which allows you to create decentralized applications. And these applications can be anything from gambling to video games um, to creating virtual environments for VR, which is something that is definitely a another hot topic and that will definitely do really well with crypto. There'll be a lot of industries that mesh with blockchain really well, like marijuana and blockchain will do, will have a lot and have a lot in common and will complement each other very well. Um, And then you'll see blockchain and VR will complement each other very well. Um, Blockchain and a lot of other tech in general will complement each other very well. Autonomous cars and blockchain will complement each other very well. Um, marketplace. It's another big topic. Yeah, marketplace. There, It's so vast. We could talk about blockchain as a separate topic probably all day long oh, yeah. and go into detail on everything it can do. But essentially, the biggest takeaway from blockchain is the smart contract. The smart contract will allow you to do just about anything you want to do, um, including decentralized structures, organizations, treasuries, governments, and things like that, um, which then gets really interesting. So I, I think it's hard to kind of pinpoint what you might want to know on blockchain, but in general, for anyone that's listening and for you, blockchain is just a very, very big topic <laughs> and it, it deserves to have subcategories. It really does. Yeah. So other than that was there anything you wanted to go over that we talked about earlier or any other topics that you wanted to cover that you had interest in 
Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of curious about, because I also know that you work with some students as well. So are they just like, you know, what stage are they in? Are they like, you know, trying to look for a job in blockchain? Are you getting like proper education on the subject? And how does it look like for, you know, students? Right. Well, from my work and my perspective, um, every once in a while, there are some students that will want some help trying to figure out what they can do in in that industry, in the blockchain industry, because it's so brand new. Um, and most of those people are generally coders, uh, computer science majors, uh, directly out of college, still in college, or a couple of years removed from college. The problem is a lot of these giant colleges and institutions, they don't have a system set up or a track set up for blockchain. Yeah, you can go to MIT and take a course on blockchain, or you can get maybe a certificate for blockchain in, in certain places, but it's very hard to come by. You can't go to college and say that you're going to go and become a blockchain developer in the same sense that you can go to college and say, I want to be a doctor. Like It's not laid out um, course-wise as strictly as if you're going to medical school. If you wanted to, even even for computer science today, you can get a computer science degree. You can definitely do that, but there isn't like a specific laid out track and like post-grad plan for being in computer science. People that get their computer science degree get proficient in different uh, program languages and coding, and then they take that skill to a big company and then they make they make bank. They make a ton of money. Um, and the people that are doing that are realizing that the demand for blockchain is incredibly high and the jobs for blockchain starting are six figures a year. You can get a six figure job right out of college. If you know how to develop on a blockchain, if you, if you can work as an engineer on a blockchain. So I get a lot of people that ask, how can they get into that industry? So what I'll end up doing is I'll try and find resources for them. And there's a lot of nano degrees out there that you can get that are relatively cheap, that are very comprehensive and by very accredited and reputable um, professors or insiders in the industry. And you can get all, all kinds of different certificates and whatnot. And a lot of companies are going to move that direction eventually because it's a, it makes a lot more sense and it's a lot cheaper to take someone that's hardworking make them go take a course to learn a specific skill and then hire them for that specific skill rather than have this hot shot come out of college with a four-year bachelor's degree and expect to get a high-paying job with no experience. It's just not economical. That's not how our system should work. Our system should work based on merit because it's a capitalist society and it should work based on not just your hard work, but the skills you learn and develop um, through experience and then having, you'll save time and money by learning just the specific skills you need. I mean, the K through 12 system teaches you everything you need to know in general, how to read, how to write, basic math skills, and including algebra and calc in some situations. So going to colleges is just, um, it, it's something that's not necessary. And not to stray too far from the topic, but a lot of people that are trying to get into blockchain, they just don't have that option in colleges. 
but there are a lot of options online nowadays to get micro degrees, nano degrees, whatever you want to call them in very specific skill sets, um, for learning solidity, um, or learning how to build on top of the Ethereum blockchain, how to build smart contracts, how to engineer on the blockchain. Um, you can learn all this stuff online for relatively cheap. And with that skill, you'll be able to get a really good paying job if you're a good coder. So for, for the most part, when I work with students, they want to know how they can get into blockchain. And so I push them in that direction and give them as many tools as possible um, and skills as possible so that they can take that to whatever job they're trying to get or to help them get that blockchain job. It's not a huge transition, but there's no resources in college. Very, very few resources, yeah. if any. Yeah. One follow-up question on this is like, do you think it would be a better way for students to, you know, take the classes, online classes, but also like, you know, start internships? And I'm wondering, you know, is there any internships open for students in this particular field? Um, if you... I don't know if there's any specific internships that I'm aware of in the blockchain field because there's very few actual companies. I know that um, Coinbase is a good place to look at. They they are hiring a lot of people right now, and you might be able to get an internship with Coinbase. Um, so for anyone out there that does want to get an internship in that field, I definitely look into Coinbase. I know they opened a big office in Portland and they're hiring like crazy in general right now. Um, and Ledger opened up an office in New York. Ledger might be open to something like that as well. Um, outside of that, there aren't a lot of other SMEs or smaller businesses that are in the crypto business that are offering internships. And there aren't a whole lot of large corporations that are doing that. There are definitely a lot of jobs though. And they're willing to pay you a lot of money. Um, but in terms of just wanting to get the experience, I'd say Coinbase and Ledger might be your best bet if you want to work with a company that's actively like in blockchain. But over the next few years, there's going to be a lot more companies that are going to exist that are going to bring competition, that are going to bring in interns and stuff. Um, so if you're looking for an internship, I'd check out those guys or I would just be patient. Um, for the next couple of years, and you'll probably see a lot more opportunities. I see. That's that's good to know because I know that CMC, uh, Clara McKenna, there are a lot of people who are interested in this sector, and they do have like you know blockchain clubs and all that stuff, and then they do bring in a lot of speakers. So so I think like it's yeah. a good place to start, you know, with education, and then it comes with like you know real world experience. Yeah, for anyone that's a student that's like on campus still, I would recommend they just look for student organizations or clubs that they can be a part of um, to learn more about it and then reach out to some of these um, on-campus organizations similar to like CIE at like Claremont McKenna. We were talking about that um, a while ago. Uh, they're a good resource to help bring in people that have knowledge in the space and they can definitely help you find either internships or more importantly, more information on blockchain. It's hard to find an internship uh, for blockchain at this point, but there's plenty of information out there. It's just not always curated. 
um, which is why with my company with Blockhash and why I'm doing this podcast um, and why I put out all the content that I do, it's to provide that information to create a hub of information uh, for uh, students and corporations and individuals that want to be kept up to speed on all kinds of different topics that range from uh, getting jobs in the industry to taxes and regulations um, and laws to abide by and how it's shaping up form uh, on a foreign perspective internationally um, what's being developed what blockchains are good blockchains what blockchains are shitty blockchains um, and then how can you integrate with the tech like how can you integrate like merchant systems and allow your customers to pay with crypto and how can you get involved with mining and staking and proof of capacity and all these different validation methods that have come out. So that's what my company does in particular is just try to provide that education. But for anyone out there that wants to do something similar, definitely encourage them to provide that education. And if you're looking for it, seek out those people that are trying to provide it because that's going to be your best way to get a ticket into the industry yeah yeah and it's like still like you said it's a wild west but like i do really appreciate your work here to consolidate all of these bits of information that's been scattered around everywhere that people can at least you know have somewhere to start because starting to learn everything on your own without like a structure is incredibly hard yeah it is definitely very hard and thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing what you're able to share today about your experiences with Bitmain and your paper. Um, that All that stuff is incredibly valuable to a lot of people out there. Um, so again, Chi, thank you for coming on and taking the time on a Sunday to do this. It's awesome. Yeah, appreciate thank it. Thank you for giving me a platform to share some of the stuff that I know. Thank you, Brendan. And also thank you for helping me with my thesis and finding the data. That's like, without your help, I won't even be able to write this paper. Yeah, of course. Anytime. More, more than happy to do it. Love, I love looking at numbers. It's like a, a sick <laughs> joke. <laughs> but yeah, awesome. Thank you for coming on. Um, we'll, I'll try and have you on again in the future as things continue to develop. And I'll, I'll t probably talk to you after this as well. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, Chi. I'll see you later.